Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, a podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Center's Coalition and Radio Siams at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This series has been developed in partnership with Season 4 of the Sapiens Podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology stories and who tells them. My name is Rebecca Gerdes, and I am a PhD student in classics at Cornell. I also serve as the assistant director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies and as the production assistant for Sapiens Talkback. And I'm Sam Disotel, a recent graduate of the master's program in the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies and current researcher for Cornell's American Indian and Indigenous Studies program. In this episode, we continue the discussion that began in episode six of season four of the Sapiens podcast, a conversation that examines slavery, sustenance, and resistance, or what we might think of as setting the table for an archaeology of resistance. We're joined by two special guests today. Dr. Peggy Brunash is a lecturer in the history of Atlantic slavery at the University of Glasgow and the first director of the Beniba Center for Slavery Studies. Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, Dr. Brunash. Thank you so much for having me. Joining us as well is Dr. Kelly Fonto-Dietz, Director of Collections and Visitor Engagement at Stratford Hall Plantation and Visiting Scholar in the Department of African American Studies at UC Berkeley. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. We're also very pleased to be joined today by an international panel of graduate students who will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussions. In addition to probing the issues raised in Episode 6 of the Sapiens series, We will also be discussing insights provided by two recent publications. The first is a piece entitled Contemporary Archaeology and Anti-Racism, a manifesto from the European Society of Black and Allied Archaeologists, with Dr. Brunash as lead author. The second is a 2018 article in Smithsonian Magazine by Dr. Dietz, headlined, How Enslaved Chefs Helped Shape American Cuisine. So I'd like to get us started with a big picture question for both of you. One of the major themes that you both highlighted in the Sapiens episode was the transformational power of food to change the tone of conversations on racism. I know that in your outreach work, Dr. Brunash, which we talked about in a Radio Science episode back in October 2020, which is available on our Radio Science archive and SoundCloud, et cetera, you've used literal meals featuring Creole cuisine to engage with modern audiences about the history of enslavement. And Dr. Dietz, you commented in your Smithsonian Magazine article on how in your work at Stratford Hall, food can actually be a bridge to learning the rich and complex role of Black enslaved cooks in Southern food history. Both of your work shows that food brings people to the table, literally, to listen. So what is it about food for you that is so powerful in changing the narrative? And how'd you come to realize its potential? Is this an untapped tool that archaeology needs to explore? I came to thinking about food and writing about food and therefore researching food when I was (laughs) struggling for a topic for my dissertation. But something I, I knew I wanted to do is that I wanted to be able to talk about the experiences of enslaved people and their descendants and not just focus on the victimization aspect of it. And I certainly wanted to make sure that whatever I talk about, write about is accessible to people like my parents and my relatives who, for the most part, are immigrants. And for example, my mother couldn't even pronounce archaeology. It just was, it wouldn't go off the tongue. I didn't want to only engage in high theory. Food I found was something, is this interesting vehicle that we all understand. We all have to consume it. And it is something that is a tie to slavery as well as before then that is an aspect of pride, of power, social power in particular, how we can talk about it in terms of gendered perspectives in a way that will keep not only Black audiences engaged and not feel that we're just reproducing and rehashing over the trauma of brutal racialized terrorism and exploitation, but something that is still connected to the present in many ways through what, whether you call it fast food or just the, the concept of, of soul food in the United States, the concepts of Creole cuisine in the Caribbean that nearly everyone, regardless of race, understands. So I found that 
if I could bring food into the conversation, one, it kind of displaces the tensions that some whites may have to, to even discussing what their ancestors' role may have been. It displaces the idea of shame immediately or guilt and then allows them to engage because everybody wants to eat good food first and foremost. But the same thing also happens in terms of using food as a way to consume, literally consume history in a manner that continues to allow descendants of enslaved Africans as a, a place of pride. I want to echo what, what my colleague Peggy is, is saying about the importance of food. And, you know, as a white person, I'm just going to say it, white folks are incredibly uncomfortable talking about slavery and racism, full stop, end of story. So at Stratford Hall, for example, when we fire up that 1738 hearth and we have African-American, you know, interpreters in there cooking, talking, getting the smells of the 18th century into the 21st, when those people that come to Stratford Hall, which is the birthplace of Robert E. Lee, when they come there and they do their hajj, right, to Stratford to see where he was born, and they smell those biscuits cooking, and they smell that chicken frying, and they enter into that space, which is a space of power. And Dontavius Williams is in there doing his thing and literally engaging all of their senses. There's something very nostalgic about the smell of food. And if you are a Southerner, the smell of certain kinds of foods really gets you at a place that only, only sense can bring you, right? That smell of that gravy, the smoke and the fire. So when people walk into that space and all of their senses are ignited and they start to feel somewhat vulnerable because they start getting hungry and all of those sort of very biological reactions start happening to these people, it allows them to enter in a conversation. Now, obviously the person in that space that space of power, Dontavious Williams, for example, at Stratford, has the ability then to enter into a conversation with them about the food that their ancestors ate collectively, right? And it is in those moments that you're able to insert the realities of enslavement. What was it like to actually cook in that kitchen? You know, the fact that Black folks and white folks eat a lot of the same food in the South. What does that mean? And through those conversations, you can start to attribute the honor and the credit to enslaved African and African-Americans who literally invented American cuisine. So when they start saying, oh, I love gumbo. Oh, well, do you know what gumbo is? Those kinds of conversations allow these white folks and others as well to really kind of realize that what they think of as theirs, everything from the food to the culture to the country is actually shared with other people. And it, it really allows those very sort of built-in instincts amongst racist folks to break down. And it's an incredibly powerful tool. Thank you for those amazing answers. I just wanted to tie it into a takeaway from the manifesto from the European Society of Black and Allied Archaeologists, where one of, one of the themes was effectively coming with openness and humility towards these conversations. And it, it just sounds like mentioning terms like vulnerability and food making you vulnerable in a shared way do you think food can kind of be a vehicle towards that openness and humility? It's an interesting concept that we don't really talk about very often. The fact that you are going to allow some stranger, even if you know them relatively well, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position that you are going to allow them to feed you something that could harm you. And technically, we have found lots of primary sources, particularly in the Caribbean, with the fear, more so not of, of slave revolts and rebellions, but of being poisoned. The fear of being vulnerable, that someone that you've entrusted to feed you, to sustain you as an enslaved cook, could put you and your family in danger, is a very powerful notion that we don't really talk about very often. But then, as Kelly has so aptly said, that vulnerability also lends to nostalgia. It actually is beyond language. That's part of the reason why we allow it to hit our senses in that way. The scent hits you first, then there's the taste of it, and then it, it triggers other aspects, usually, hopefully, ideas and feelings of family, of community, of love. And food, particularly in the Caribbean, if we're thinking about slave food is yet 
another place that we don't talk about in terms of resistance enough. Culinary resistance is fascinating in the fact that for the most part, people had to be told colonial administrations needed to create, particularly the French Caribbean, had to write and tell the slavers, hey, you need to feed the enslaved. You need to feed them. I have yet to find any historic document that says, uh, feed your beasts a burden, your oxen, your, your horses, your donkey. But yet, yet slavers had to be told to feed people. So the fact that enslaved Africans and their descendants not only found all these creative, ingenious ways of subsistence strategies to, one, survive, but then two, to make that food taste so amazing that we still continue to eat. The legacies of slave food is so powerful. I want to echo that as well. I'm going to be echoing you all day, Becky, just so you know. (laughs) But I think it's, you know, thinking about, and I said earlier, thinking about the kitchen as a space of power and the cook as someone who is powerful. And I go into this in my book as well, Bound to the Fire, talking about even after things like Nat Turner's Rebellion, I don't think rich white people ate for a week. I mean, literally, like, I don't think any cook on those plantations was having to cook. I think that they were, the white folks were so afraid from the letters that I've read that this was about to be an all out war. And they knew that that person that they were trusting, right, every day with making all of their meals and feeding their children and everything could literally do exactly what Nat Turner did and wage war on the oppressor. And, you know, I think that that's left out of the story far too much. And it's really important to think about the nuance of those relationships, the negotiations that were happening out of fear, out of vulnerability. And I think that food and enslaved chefs hit both of those perfectly. My name is Sarah Ann Knudsen, and I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley and an incoming assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. So the study of food practices and resistance used to be often dismissed and overlooked in archeology span as quote unquote, invisible practices in the material and or historical records. So I was wondering if each of you could speak to what kinds of evidence you found to be particularly important in your research And how can interdisciplinary approaches in particular help us to better understand the active roles of enslaved individuals in the past? One of the things I found interesting when I was doing research for my dissertation was, again, coming across all these French historic documents that were repeatedly saying, oh, these poor slaves, oh my God, how are they surviving? They have nothing to eat. They get the tiniest scraps of anything. And And whatever they eat, it's in this weird, spicy, hodgepodge, one pot kind of thing. But it's mostly a bunch of chili peppers and and tubers, like, you know, yams and things like that. They hardly have any beef or any meat of any kind. Okay, that was true. But I also found through archaeological excavations and analyses of, uh, you know, using zooarchaeology was that on certain plantations that may have been close enough to waterways and the coastline, maybe they didn't have the time or the skill to fish. They certainly weren't really allowed off the plantation for the most part, but at least on the plantations that I was able to study, the enslaved found ways to supplement their meals with as much shellfish, for example, as possible. So yes, maybe they weren't getting beef and maybe there was very little pork but they were certainly getting meat. And then I had to understand that, oh, so there is a sort of culinary value from a white lens that is placed upon slave foodways in certain cases. For one, because beef was not relegated or allowed in any manner for the enslaved, unless it was you know, barrel beef, then anything less than that wasn't really eating. Right. We, we, we already understand the idea of haute cuisine and the way the French conceived it or conceives it, present tense. That was true hundreds of years ago. But yet the enslaved always were ingenious in the way of how they supplemented their need for meat using whatever possible. So whether this was going to be wild game or sending children out or those who were too infirm to work and cutting sugarcane or processing sugarcane, they would be sent to the coast to collect as much shellfish 
And as, as I'm sure Kelly has already seen and experienced herself, you could take five simple ingredients and substitute one thing out and it completely changes the taste, the texture, the heat, the spice of those meals. So from the European lens, there's this negative concept of food that's pushed down upon the enslaved, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how the enslaved viewed their own food. Because so many of those recipes, the legacies continue today in many ways, as, as Kelly's talked about, gumbo and other kinds of, of soul food slash Caribbean Creole cuisines. So being able to use the historic documents, as we do in historic archaeology, with our form of primary sources, the artifacts, the zooarchaeological remains, things like that, we can either counter what those in power were saying or corroborate that or a mix of both. And then also being able to understand more so thinking about the way we still conceptualize food now. Do we think of it as poor people's food, as something that's not as good as Thai cuisine? When we know even now, soul food is so beloved, so beloved. Yes, there are many Michelin star kinds of restaurants, but that doesn't mean that local communities do not live and die for that food. So maybe we can also think about that in how maybe enslaved people might have thought about the food that they had at that time. I want to also add something, just as somebody who came up in African-American studies, I did not get degrees in anthropology. I have excavated for decades, and I'm very much a self-considered historical archaeologist in many ways. But I do want to call out archaeologists a little bit. Coming from an African-American studies background, I was kind of, you know, I was really on the, in a liminal space between history and archaeology during grad school as well as undergrad. And I continue to straddle the crossroads between those two disciplines. I think that my training in African-American studies allowed me to really, really be truly interdisciplinary. And I have not seen that kind of flexing in people that have been trained solely in history or solely in archaeology. I think it's gotten better. But I would say that I think archaeologists need to do better in looking at a broader assortment of primary documents because there's a lot out there. I think they also need to employ oral, oral history more, do more interviews. And that's something that I think has helped me in talking about this history and legacy of African diaspora food is actually doing the work with people who are living now, you know, more of a cultural anthropological sort of uh, way of doing things. But I do feel like there's just been a, a lack of full submersion, which takes a lot. You know, I know at some point you're like, you know, how many primary sources do I really need? And for me, straddling those two you know, those two fields, you know, I had to defend material culture to the historians and defend my complete passion for the archives, the archaeologists. And at some point when we're trying to tell the stories of these enslaved people who are not in the archives and who are, you know, buried deep into the earth, we need to do a better job creating a stronger conversation between those two fields. My name is Jess Johnson, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures Department at the University of California, Berkeley. I study ancient Egyptian art and architecture with an emphasis in decolonization. And my question is for Dr. Dietz. You mentioned in your article that a woman was upset at the idea of enslaved cooks being responsible for cuisine now often identified as Southern. How can we as archaeologists navigate any potential disagreements with work meant to be anti-colonialist or anti-racist? Are we as professionals responsible for untangling individuals' cultural identities in order to put these new narratives at the forefront of history? We are absolutely responsible for these conversations. Most Americans have been fed a great lie for their entire lives. They've read lost cause textbooks. They have no idea what actually happened before today. So we as scholars, people who actually have a command of the past through actual evidence, whether it be historical or archaeological, need to be the authority out there. We have to push back with facts. We have to activate the archive in these conversations because this continued myth is a symptom of the larger systemic racism in this country. We cannot afford to have anyone believe that slavery was good for Black people. We cannot have anyone believe that somehow their ancestors didn't benefit and they're not benefiting now from the forced labor of enslaved Africans. Those kinds of lies that have been literally sewn into every bit of fabric into this country need to be dissembled. 
And if we're not the ones to do it, I don't think there's anybody who can. We have the truth. We have the messy truth at our fingertips. We have the authority to say so. And it is in those moments, incredibly awkward moments, like that evening when that lady came at me sideways. She came because she wanted to hear about puddings and biscuits. And she was incredibly upset that she didn't have her lie supported with my authority. Hiya, my name is Jose Julian Garay Vasquez. I am a PhD student at the Institute of Archaeology at University College London. And um, today my question is for Dr. Brunage. So basically as an Afro-Indigenous archaeologist from Borigan, growing up, the story that all of the Taino or quote-unquote broadly Indigenous people from the Caribbean were exterminated during the late 15th century was used as the kind of like main explanation for saying that that's the reason why a lot of enslaved Africans were brought in. However, I mean, there is evidence that enslaved uh, Indigenous people lived alongside enslaved Africans. And then this is also used in modern day narratives of Caribbean identity, you know, that like we are the product of African, European and Indigenous mixed all together. So my question is, have you found evidence of the continuation of Indigenous traditions alongside African enslaved individuals from your work in the Caribbean? So my new project centers on the experiences of Black people on the island of St. Vincent. And that, we certainly have a lot of evidence of the Caribs, who were the indigenous people there. But as it turns out, there is quite a bit of confusing, convoluted history about the what were called the red or yellow Caribs, the indigenous population. And those that interbred with them who were survivors of a a shipwreck of a slaving vessel and ended up on St. Vincent. They were called Black Caribs. And so for quite a number of decades, even while St. Vincent was occupied by the French before it became a seceded land that went to the Brits in the late 18th century, around 1770s, there were enslaved peoples free people of color, British and French colonists, all living on the same island with the Caribs, who some were, again, more to be awkward about it, racially or ethnically mixed, and those who may not have mixed as much. With the Brits being the way they were, they tried to take more land than they should, and the Caribs ended up having not one, but two wars. And eventually they were deported and put on other islands. Eventually they made their way to, they were literally pushed off and sent to Central America and became what we now call the Garifuna. So we do have historical evidence of them living together, working, or at least sharing land. If we want to look at other islands, such as, say, Hispaniola, that is a little bit harder. We have far more evidence with Palenques in Mexico, of maroon communities that have made their way safely into the mountains and were able to, at least, if not necessarily intermix, but certainly coincide in the same spaces, these areas of resistance away from plantation economies along the coastlines of of Mexico and other parts of Central America. We certainly had the same thing happening in Jamaica and certainly in Hispaniola. But how far into the colonial period It depends on the island. I'm actually quite interested in the material culture and the legacies of plant knowledge and horticulture and what was passed on from the indigenous to what became the enslaved and what we now are calling the descendants living on these different islands. You know, how certain foods are cooked and processed. For example, we know manioc. We have actual pictures of 15th century processing of manioc by indigenous people and photographs from the late 19th century where these huts and the processing of manioc are identical. You could put the pictures right next to the engraving from the 15th century and the 19th century photograph right next to each other. So we know there are legacies that continue. But again, trying to tease it out of either archaeology, the historic documents, anthropology, and other disciplines is the battle. Hi, I'm Helen Wong, a PhD student in the Art and Archaeology of the Mediterranean World Program at the University of Pennsylvania. 
I have a question for Dr. Dietz. Your work exploring the lives of enslaved cooks is really impactful, highlighting a particular type of labor that is unacknowledged and manipulated in mainstream narratives of Southern cuisine. So I'm curious to know, what would you consider to be ideal outcomes from your work, both within academic circles and outside of them? Great question, and I appreciate you as well bridging the academy into the public. That's something that I'm very passionate about. You know, I would love to decolonize the every tower and break down that wall and have all the knowledge we shared with everybody. So I do this work because I'm I'm dedicated my life to telling the stories of the enslaved. I can't imagine anybody being able to walk around in 2022 and not feel a certain responsibility for testifying on behalf of the past. I think there have been incredible injustices throughout this world. And I think that this particular topic of enslaved African-Americans and Africans is something that, that really resonated with me. And I chose that path because I wanted to restore justice. I wanted to have conversations that help reconcile the racial trauma of our past and our present. And some of the things that I would really like to see happen as a result of our collective work, this is not just about me is I would like people of African descent to be proud of their ancestors, to be proud of who they are. I think that we spend a lot of time, as needs to happen, right? And Peggy had mentioned this too, talking about what was done to enslaved people. We know it was traumatic. We know there was abuse. We know that it, I, I couldn't even imagine, right, having to persevere, you know, enslavement. That's just unfathomable to me. But I think that we need to balance that out by talking about what enslaved people did. So when we just talk about the horrors of enslavement, it literally distills enslaved whole experience into what white people did to them. And that is unfair and unjust to their history and legacy because they not only persevered enslavement, but they created some of the most proud things that we consider as collective Americans, Southern food you know, music, blues, I mean, you name it. So much of our popular culture in the world is a product of African people. And so at some point, I would really like the mainstream narrative to give credit to those who created, who were the seeds of all the things that we all hold dear to us now, you know, as citizens of this world. And I would like just to have credit be given as well, you know, credit particularly to the enslaved chefs who literally were bound to the fire. I mean, you know, I'm delighted right now that there are Netflix series like High on the Hog and people are talking about the foodways, right? But there are so many people who are lost in the archive who are not these famous men like Hercules and like James Hemings. The women who were not recorded, who literally gave their all by force to create the cuisine that we now know and love. So I think credit needs to happen. I think the narrative needs to change. And I would love to see a sense of pride instilled in everybody of African descent because their ancestors are my heroes. If I could just further something Kelly has said, and I think this is something we need to be very, very clear about. For anyone who chooses to research the African diaspora on any level, it's clear for Kelly, as it is for myself, that this is a calling. We bind ourselves to the trauma that happened in the past, knowing that on some level, this activism that we do, this intellectual activism that we do, does bring up a sense of trauma too. Whether for Kelly, who is not, as far as I know, has any ancestry of people who were enslaved, but I certainly do. And she yet still feels a sense of calling, as do I. I had to learn the hard way. And I think, Helen, this is something that I hope you, you've you already come to understand this. Just because there's someone doing the work doesn't mean it's a calling for them. And it doesn't mean that they're doing it for the right reasons. I unfortunately came across colleagues who do African diasporic archaeology, and they are personally not on the right side of history and only end up reproducing even the rhetoric, the racist rhetoric in private, right? Not in publication, but in private. And I had to distance myself from them. So just because someone is doing the work that we feel needs to be done doesn't necessarily mean they are truly walking that path of activism and education that, that Kelly's doing, that I'm doing. Just want to thank you for saying that, Peggy, because I think a lot of us have seen that kind of behavior. And I think there's more people now that are coming into this with more passion and drive. But there have been generations that continue 
of people doing this work that are not doing it for the right reasons. And that is incredibly dangerous to the health of the field and the health of this nation. This is Sam Disatel speaking again. This question is for both Dr. Dietz and Dr. Brunash. So I was really fascinated by this topic of resistance through the maintenance and development of new cuisines and new food ways. But often in history, resistance is met with a reaction, more resistance by the oppressors. So in your research, do you see examples of the white slave owners and overseers trying to stamp out that kind of culinary resistance? And if so, what material forms does this take? Interestingly, I have not come across any of that, I would say, for the reason that they didn't see it as resistance. The slavers, overseers, those white colonists who had any sort of power did not see it as resistance because their culinary value of what is high cuisine was radically different than what the enslaved were eating. So there was no resistance there. In fact, what I found to be more interesting is that on many of these islands where because the vast majority of land was reserved for commodity, growing sugarcane or coffee or whatever, there was very little area for farming to feed the actual colonists. So much of the food that they were depending on were coming on ships. But across the 18th century going into the 19th, The Caribbean was basically the Wild West. I mean, there was constant war happening all the time. So you never knew if you were going to get a shipment in of your favorite China, much less your favorite foods. So it was actually due to the surplus grown by the enslaved through their provision grounds, their slave gardens, that often ended up feeding those that were keeping them enslaved. So they certainly weren't going to resist or try to stamp out, in many cases, their only food source. I would also add that it wasn't about them resisting. They literally, in the records that I've seen, they literally leaned into the cuisine. So, you know, I've read dozens of primary source cookbooks, ones that aren't published. You know, the old funky ones you find in the archive that are handwritten from the 18th and 19th century. And by the 19th century, you know, the 18th century ones are all this sort of like European worshiping kind of recipes that they really hope to somehow have people recreate for them in the colony. My God, by the 19th century, you start seeing things like gumbo, okra stew, jambalaya on the, in those recipe books written by white ladies. So, I mean, they literally started to inscribe African food into the literal texts of American foodways in the 19th century. And that doesn't mean they weren't eating it in the 18th century, but at some point, those dishes that they literally probably smell walking around, you know, in the garden, coming from the slave quarter, those people that were cooking that food got tapped to come into that big house kitchen. And at some point, when the so-and-sos were visiting from some other plantation, guess what they were going to be eating for dinner? They were going to be eating gumbo for dinner as one of their courses. And when I would love to go back in time, as I'm sure Peggy would too. And be a fly on the wall when those, you know, uptight white folks show up at the Lee's house and they're sitting there eating African food. Do you know how amazing that moment was? And imagine the chef, too, thinking about like, yep, you're eating my stuff. Like, you like that, Mr. Lee? I mean, it's just these moments, right, where it's not about resistance, but it's about, again, going back to that power. It's like, oh, you like my food? Watch this. And the pride in that, and oh, so-and-so, Mrs. Carter wants to eat that gumbo stew again, right? I mean, it's it's just appropriation. Yeah, oh, it's definitely appropriation. And that's, you know, I write about this in my book, but, you know, for so long until recently, and still what I'd say most plantation museums, you go there and you hear about the missus making all the food. And that food was made by enslaved African and African-Americans. And the food that they were eating Some of it was literally directly descended from those African dishes that they were eating in parts of Western Central Africa. So, yes, there was appropriation. But in those moments of the time, I would love to go back there and just watch that interaction of that dish going on that table and having people's reaction to this really this new cuisine that was being cooked by those who they enslaved. Hi again, Julian here. I have a question actually for both Dr. Brunich and Dr. Dietz. 
So there are stories of European settlers seeking, hunting Indigenous women to put them in charge of domestic labours. And those stories are commonplace in Caribbean historical documents, more specifically stories about conquistadors taking Indigenous women as wives, quote unquote, and then them being in charge of, you know, the domestic life of this uh, conquistador. Have you found this type of relationships in your respective areas of work? I mean, in which instead of being an enslaved person of African descent, being one of indigenous descent, being the centerpiece on the production of food. I have not come across that personally in my research in the Caribbean, because particularly in looking at Guadeloupe, the indigenous were were already exterminated. You know, genocide already happened. However, I am well aware of those scenarios certainly happening on other islands and particularly in Spanish Florida around the 17th century, but not of my work in particular, though we understand why it happened, right? The vast majority of colonists, adventurers, explorers, whatever you want to call them, were for the most part men before they really started to create these settlements that therefore then they were going to spend more time and try to create a new Spain or a new France. So the ones that they didn't end up killing off, and they did a really good job of trying to kill as many as they could if they couldn't enslave them. Many of the women were, we do know, were taken in as, I wouldn't even call them wives because that gives them a sense of power that we can't necessarily say they had because of the racial and ethnic elements. And in places like St. Vincent, I've only seen it again between, so far in my research, between Indigenous and African, but not from the French and certainly not from the, the Brits. I'd like to add that while I haven't seen any kind of example, as you mentioned, I do want to talk for a moment, and I think it's appropriate to bring up right now, the power dynamics of the enslaver, of the overseer, of the white men, and the women who are enslaved in the domestic space. You know, I think that we can get really caught up very easily talking about the power of the cook and the kitchen and poisoning and all those things. But there was another side of this. Enslaved women of African descent were constantly under pressure to do all of the work of the house, to figure out some way to also mother their own children while they're nursing theirs of their enslaver. And they were also victims of abuse as well as rape in those domestic spaces more so than even in the slave quarters. So there's this sort of myth, you know, around how it was easier somehow to work in the house, how, you know, house slaves had it better than field slaves. There's this whole sort of mythology that's really baked into not just mainstream narrative, but even very prominent narratives in the African diaspora community. And I think it's really important to really understand the vulnerability that these women had. You know, they literally were in the bedrooms of their enslaver. They were, you know, uh, wiping the person's butt. I mean, this is a very sort of raw and intimate force, obviously, relationship between these enslavers and these enslaved women. And I think it's really important just to note that these different white men absolutely took advantage of these women, whether it be Sally Hemings or others, without consent and really took advantage of that power dynamic in grotesque ways. So I just, I felt the need to pause and talk about the lack of agency at times because of the power dynamic in those situations. But to add on to what Kelly has been saying, it is still quite complicated. The, the negotiation of power dynamic really often depended on the time frame, the location, the size of the settlement. So, for example, we certainly know that there were some places in Spanish colonial America where indigenous partners were elevated to some extent, right? They had some status, but in other places that wasn't the case. So it requires us to be very particular about where we're talking about it, even if we're talking about specifically interracial, interethnic sexual relationships between white Europeans and the indigenous. It depends on specifically what would be allowed, say, in Peru was not necessarily the same thing in Colombia, depending, and it could be as short as 10 years time. So we really have to be careful about how we, we talk about that. But 
so much of what Kelly has said is so true that the domestic sphere, which plenty of people want to say was the easier place to be, was not. We're not trying to actually say like for like, but we certainly want to make sure that people know that it was a complicated negotiation that did not necessarily benefit someone, especially if they were a woman, especially if they were not white, bound or enslaved in the domestic sphere. Hi, this is Helen again. I have a question for Dr. Bernash this time. And thank you very much for your response earlier about the distinction between just doing the work and actually doing it in an ethically invested, emotionally invested way. I often struggle with the idea that perhaps the way I'm being trained to do archaeology is inherently inseparable from the legacies of racism and colonialism. So how can students question and respond to the problematic ways, consciously or subconsciously, that archaeology is being taught? It would certainly help to have mentorship, people that at least are, if not, don't look like you or are part of an ethnic minority group, certainly have your back in these situations. I can personally recall a situation when I decided to leave cultural resource management and I was going to go and get my master's first. And I said, I, I you know, was telling the crew that I was going to focus on Black people. And a white coworker of mine who was in a position of power as a supervisor told me that it was racist for me to go and study Black people. And I said, how? And she said, well, I'm of Irish descent. What if I wanted to go and study the Irish? Now, not everybody's as confrontational as me because it became very obvious to everyone that I was about to beat the crap out of this woman. But we're not all in that position, nor will we not be penalized if we take it that way, right? We can't always respond in violence, and usually it does not help. This is why my co-founders of ESPA, the European Society for Black and Allied Archaeologists, and that is the key, allied, so that we can help change the discussions around, one, who gets to do archaeology? How are they supported? Is there mentorship? How do we retain them? Because there are plenty of, we, we've all experienced situations where there are more people who would want to enter archaeology that aren't white, but the way the structure is, it drives them out. And those of us that came in early without mentorship, without seeing anyone that looked like us, somehow lucked out or had the allies to help us. We need to find more allies. We need to call upon those who are not part of an ethnic minority to stand with us and say that we need to decolonize archaeology because in often it's only replicating many colonialist and racist stances. So one thing that helps becoming part of organizations like the Society for Black Archaeologists, for societies like ours in Europe, but we're really based in Britain, and look for help that way, look for support that way. And that's what we're trying to do slowly. Hi again, this is Jess. And my question is for Dr. Dietz. Part of anti-racist and anti-colonial efforts is often to increase diversity in academic fields. Doing so diversifies and highlights marginalized voices within these fields. But what do you think this increase in diversity will do for these marginalized communities in return? I think it's important for people to see authority in themselves and to see themselves in authority. And so I think, you know, for people that don't feel like they have a stake in archaeology, to see somebody like Peggy Bernash or my sister-in-law Anna Agby Davies or Maria Franklin or any of the other amazing African-descended women in this field, to see them speak with authority, to see them have a successful career, you know, the fact that they are doing this work and doing it well, I think reflects really well on the field, which I think, you know, the field has its issues. So, you know, it's, it's a slight sort of prism into what can be. But I do feel like this work needs to be done by a bunch of different people. And like Peggy said as well, it's not just the responsibility, which is a huge responsibility of people of African descent to do the work of African diaspora archaeology. You need to have people that look like myself doing it as well, but for the right reasons. I do think that also, I've always thought about this and said this, that archaeology needs to be taught in African-American studies programs. 
It needs to be taught at every HBCU. And until we start making really bold claims to those departments in those spaces, it's not going to change. I mean, I've, I've seen Peggy and I, we've seen the field change drastically in the last 10 years, but it's not enough. It's not enough at all. And now everybody's excited about race, even people that you know, aren't actually excited about race. It's like, oh, oh yes, I'm, I'm an activist and I'm an anti-racist and show me your card because I don't, I don't believe most people that say that. And so I do feel like those representations need to happen. We need to make this not just a, an interesting field, but one that calls people like Peggy and myself and all of you in this podcast. What's calling us to do the work? People are getting called to do this work right now and they have no idea where to go. So we need to be louder. What can archaeology do for today? What can history do for today? What can the archive and artifacts do for the legacy? Not just the history, the legacy of enslaved people. And until we start making those connections boldly and loudly, we're just going to be you know, sitting around in the ivory tower, not doing the actual work. What Kelly is also saying, if I, if I can add what she hasn't openly said, just so we're clear. We see diversity, but Kelly is also, and I myself, we're advocating for inclusivity. It's not just enough to see us there. We need to be equal. There needs to be equity in the inclusion of not only what we do, but how we get published, as well as who sees us. So, you know, and Kelly's point, my God, Kelly's point about making archaeology taught at HBCUs, that is inclusivity. There's enough diversity at HBCUs, but there's not inclusivity in archaeology yet. So I, I just wanted to make sure that, not to explain what Kelly was saying, I just want to make sure everyone's very clear that diversity is not synonymous with inclusivity. Hi, this is Sarah Ann again. This question is for both Dr. Brunash and Dr. Dietz. What do each of you think is the most exciting question for future archaeological research on enslaved experiences and resistance that you feel researchers have not yet sufficiently explored? So there's been a lot of, there are new directions happening in social history by people like Sadia Hartman, where one is reading against the grain and trying to not just see and hear the enslaved, but create, hopefully, a fuller, more dynamic understanding of their experience. I think it's tricky, it's controversial, it's potentially dangerous, but I do think that is an avenue that we need to try to investigate a bit more. You know, how can we use archaeology, and I think archaeology is the best way to do so, the everyday experience more dynamic for people beyond ideas of victimization. Obviously, Kelly and I do a lot with culinary resistance and even the terminologies that we use. I use the term slave cuisine. When I use that in a public setting, people just, you could see the gears in their brain kind of get stuck, right? Because slave and cuisine cannot fit together. So I think conceptualizing more power in ways we've never considered beyond resilience, not just resistance, but agency, I think, is the challenge and the daring hope that we can find those paths. I'd like to add that one of the things that I'm actually working on right now is an article that will be published here in a little bit, but looking at naming traditions, trying to really you know, I think it's really easy for people just to say, okay, you know, African diaspora, but what does that actually mean? Looking really more into the archive to and into the archaeology to look at ethnic markers, linguistic diversity, religion, right? I think that we have barely scratched the surface, the history of enslaved Muslims in this country. And that is something at Stratford Hall, we found that there was about 30% there that were Muslim. And their names stayed in the records. And so looking at archives, reading against the grain, which is what I was taught to do in African diaspora studies, when you challenge the archive and you read between the lines and you push back, you start getting answers. And you start getting answers by asking the right questions. And so simply by asking questions of the archive, 
asking questions of the Tithables list of enslaved Africans. What did their names actually mean? We have a woman named Suna. We have an Usman. I mean, the names go on and on and on. And so many names as well that were, were Christian were also Muslim as well. And so at what point do we start thinking about naming traditions and what that means for those people and giving them more of an identity than just what the, you know, what the colonizers did? They weren't just African people. And I know that there's been incredible work in African studies as well as in anthropology digging into ethnic markers and old school Africanisms and all those things from decades ago. But I think that we need to revisit that. I think that we need to think about more nuanced questions when we start doing the work because the answers are there and the ancestors will speak. There is so much more that we could discuss, but unfortunately that will have to be the last word for this episode of Sabian's Talk Back. Dr. Brunash and Dr. Dietz, thank you so much for this thoughtful and thought-provoking discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Sapiens Talkback was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and the Society of Black Archaeologists. With special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, Dr. Justin Dunavant, and Dr. Ayana Fluellen. Special thanks also to Dr. Chip Colwell and the production team at Sapiens, the Wintergren Foundation for Anthropological Research, and House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support from the Archaeological Research Facility at the University of California at Berkeley. We want to thank our panelists for leading our conversation today. Sarah Ann Knudsen, Jess Johnson, Jose Julian Garay Vasquez, and Helen Wong. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Center's Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talk Back. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Siams is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith with Ruth Portes as our engineer and Rebecca Gerdes as our production assistant. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gaikahono, the Cayuga Nation. The Gaikahono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy predates the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gaikohono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gaikohono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. And we encourage you to investigate the indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. Be sure to tune in next week for the final episode in the Sapiens podcast series, Repatriation is Our Future. And then the following week, check back with us here at Sapiens Talk Back when our guest will be Dr. Rachel Watkins, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at American University, and Dr. Dorothy Lippert from the Repatriation Office of the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. I'm Rebecca Gerdes. And I'm Sam Disotel. Thanks for listening.